0: Hi, this is Glenn Mazzara, and you're listening to the ContraZoom podcast on LiveInLimbo.com. This is ContraZoom, a Live in Limbo production.
1: This is ContraZoom.
2: Where we go back and forth about film.
1: I'm Dakota Arsino.
2: And I am Andreas Papulacus.
1: This is the second third year in a row um, that we have now covered the Toronto Screenwriting Conference and the second year where we have had some amazing interviews take place. We have four really fantastic interviews that take up So much. It's so much good content that we're going to break this up into two separate episodes. So uh, in this first episode, we're going to go through two and then the other one will do the other two. Um, But before we go any further, I am going to uh, introduce the third member of our panel. It's uh, Nathan Roizen. How are you doing today? Good. How are you? I'm doing great. Uh, this is your first time on ContraZoom. Uh, so, you know, anything that is movie or somehow movie related, we uh, we love to talk about it. And this is your first year doing this Toronto Screenwriting Conference as well. And so I thought it would be good to have you involved here to also kind of give your thoughts on this very unique experience. Um, I guess just right off the bat, what were your thoughts on it?
3: I thought it was, uh, great. Um, I've never really been to a
1: screenwriting conference.
3: Uh, but honestly, yeah, first impression, um, really great. There's a lot of great resources if you're an aspiring screenwriter or if you're a producer, or if you're just ge- generally interested in the craft or I guess the occupation. Um, yeah, it was just, it was a good time.
1: Now neither Andreas nor I really qualify as screenwriters per se. I don't really know much about your background. Do you uh do any sort of writing like that?
3: Yeah, actually, I um I really like screenwriting. I I want to be involved in that. So yeah.
1: So did you find it useful? Was there was there specific things either just little notes that are like light bulb moments for you or was it just overall a very informative sort of thing weekend? Honestly,
3: it was kind of it had a, it had an interesting effect because when the weekend like being in the moment, you're kind of taking it all in. Um, but afterwards, really, I think is where it kind of all kicked in. Like the next day, I was very inspired. I was very invigorated, and I was very. If anything, it made me kind of want to push myself a little bit more because I, I don't I I can't pinpoint. I don't know exactly what what that thing that made me think this way was or is, um, but. It definitely had a good effect. I, I, I forgot your question. <laughs>
1: <laughs> it was more just about, like, uh, did you find it useful? I think, yeah. I think it was really useful. I think it was
3: useful because, in all honesty, like, yeah, you could have seen these interviews um, on YouTube or whatever, and they probably would have had the same effect. But the usefulness came with the interaction. So you're networking with a lot of other prof- writers. A lot of them were professional. Um, and even people from all walks of life uh, somehow related to the film industry, Everyone had a business card. They're always handing it out. And and from that regard, um, it was very, very useful.
1: It almost doubles as a networking event because you have all these people, you know, the way they advertise it is that it's not screenwriting one on They're not going to teach you about what a five-act structure is. They're going to teach you, or not necessarily teach you, they're going to talk about their own experiences about how to take your writing to the next level. So you have all these people who range from, you know, um, they, they, have some sort of degree or diploma in it too. They have some limited professional experience. So everyone has a little bit going on and everyone's kind of hoping for that, that next great spark, whether it's coming from a speaker or whether it's through the networking. So I think that's a pretty unique thing. Yeah, definitely. Um, and Andreas, this is your third year going now. Uh, are you still enjoying it as much as you did the first year? Or is it any different, any worse? What, what are your thoughts?
2: I'm still enjoying it, even if, like, uh, depending on whatever year it is, if it's acts or, like, um, speakers I'm familiar with, speakers I'm unfamiliar with. I like seeing speakers that I'm familiar with because I get to open up their brain and kind of see, okay, um, this is how, you know, Charles Randall, for instance, this is how he came across coming up with, you know, the big short and adapting it this way. But I also love seeing, you know, speakers that I'm not familiar with. Like, I remember the first year I saw. Um, writers of the Assassin's Creed video game series, and it opened up my my mind to all like all the possibilities and all the all the difficulties video game writers have. And you know, you just you learn so much. You either learn something completely new, or you expand on something you already know. So either way, you're always winning.
1: That sounds good to me. Uh, I guess before we get into our first interview, uh, did either of you did, did you have a favorite session that you got to see, uh, Andreas? We'll start with you.
2: I think my favorite session and it's hard to pick. I'm going to go with one that I had no involvement with interview-wise. I'm going to go with Charles Randolph because he was so eager to just fire away answers that he often cut off the questions before they could actually be finished. He was just <laughs> such an excited little kid in the form of like a successful adult and he just he loves screenwriting. He loves how people talk. He loves how people think. The whole thing was he was obsessed with how people tell stories and that helped him with his screenwriting like He said, talk to anybody, get them to open up, get them to tell you their most personal story, because that's what they want to share the most. And you see why it's important. And that's how you form dialogue. And he's absolutely right. And just hearing him telling all of these stories while telling his own, he was right. So I'm gonna have to go with Charles Randolph.
1: I was super upset that I missed his session because the big short as listeners may remember, I did call uh, my favorite film of last year the best film of last year. And so I was really hoping to to see him. I did get to see him briefly in um, the green room area because, uh, I guess, full disclosure, I do volunteer for the festival. I do not work for them. I just volunteer every year uh, where I work with the speakers as their hosts. Um and he was ta- he was talking with Richard Krauss, the the critic who moderated his session beforehand. And then Glenn Mazzaro was in there and Moira Wally Beckett was in there. They're all just sort of firing questions off about their own stuff. And it was like, you, you're watching all these people at the top of their field and they're just like firing things away. And you're, and you're just kind of sitting back in awe that I, I wish I was paying attention better, but it was more just like slack jawed that I couldn't even comprehend what was going on. Um, Nathan what about you did you have a, a favorite of the whole weekend
3: yeah Um. honestly and I'm not just saying that because I guess we had to write a thing on them the whole thing <laughs> was very enjoyable Um. but favorites I had two favorites Um. in terms of like the writer presenters uh, Maria, Maria how do you say her name I'm so Moira. bad at- Moira there we go that, that one was great she was such a like she was such a genuine kind person and just the way she was talking about breaking bad and the actors and everyone involved she has such such a high regard for it all i don't know left a really good impression on me and um and then Corey mandel was really great too um i loved both his lectures he did two days um he was great too so they the two of them are tied for me
1: that's pretty cool all right um Let's go into the first interview, where Andreas got a chance to talk with Glenn Mazzara, who, is, who was the showrunner of The Walking Dead from the second season to, I believe, the fourth season, which people consider Wiley to be the only good seasons of The Walking Dead. Uh, and then he recently created a new show called Damien, which is basically a uh, quasi-sequel to the movie The Omen, where it's about Damien, the child, the, the Antichrist, grown up. Uh, so let's give a listen to that. This is Andreas
2: Babilakis with LiveInlimbo.com. I'm here with the great writer, Glenn Mazzaria. He just gave a talk at the Toronto screenwriting conference. He is behind some of the great episodes of shows like the shield, the walking dead and behind his very own show. Damien, how are you today? Very good. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. And it looks like you, well, you like Toronto cause you've been
0: here a number of times. Mm-hmm. You said you've been here before at this very conference. What's it like coming back? Well, coming back to the conference is great. I, it feels very comfortable, and I'm actually here with a number of people I know, and they're speaking. So I hope to see some of their talks. And, um, like I said during my talk, you know, I not only enjoy speaking and connecting with everybody, but when you sit in and you hear what other people have to say, you come away as a writer with with uh, new tools, new ways to things about to think about things. So it's it's a wonderful conference. And um, as you were saying, and I've heard some other speakers over the years and even today say
2: this as well, it's never just solely one person's job to write. There's always a team or a group of people that are permanently writing. So mm-hmm. I guess you could say that as a writer, you're permanently learning because you're permanently having new ideas being thrown about a room. Would you say that's, mm-hmm. that's true? And would you benefit from it as a writer or does it kind of hinder you with having to keep up with all the ideas that are floating around?
0: No, no, no. Well, because you're building on each other. So you're not, you're not, um, you know it's it's i describe a writer's room as sort of a um uh, imagine a band in a studio and everybody's playing their instrument and sometimes you know um uh people are you know adding stuff and and sometimes you know something doesn't sound right but you go in that direction or you know the perfect answer comes you know hits you the next day so you know the material is hard to write you know, and, and, and you sort of need a team to do that. And I think the, the, what's, what's good is if everybody's supporting each other and everybody's wants to make it better. So it's not that you're fighting for your idea against an opponent, you know, you're saying, what about this? And then someone will say, well, that's good. Well, how about if we tweak it this way? No. What about this way? Oh, that's better. And, and so it's, it's like, you know, Remember the scene in uh, Apollo 13 where they bring all the stuff in and it's like you have to make this fit that, remember? And there's just a team of brilliant engineers and it's their problem. That's what it's like, okay? I'm not saying it's rocket science, but – it's hard, okay, to, to, to write something that's fresh and imaginative, and and if you can have a great bunch of people who are intelligent and fun and, and wonderful to work with, it's the greatest experience. I think being in the writer's room with a team of writers I love is the best part of my job.
2: Now, speaking of your job, you were mentioning that one of the things that catapulted your your love for writing was the finale of mash, which I thank you for not spoiling that because i 'm forty years late, but i 'm only going to the show now i 'm in like season two or season three or something so
0: oh thank god i didn 't <laughs> spoil it for you because it it's it's uh, uh, like I said, I cannot discuss it without getting emotional it's it 's one of the most beautifully written. Uh, finales of all time i'm getting there it's like what
2: 11 seasons so i've still yeah. got a ways to go but yeah. it's it's a terrific show so um obviously like you a lot of people have been influenced by um by shows that they grew up with so when you're approaching the shows that you either have created or, or are working on um you know you've worked on some shows of great magnitude like the shield for instance is that something that runs in the back of your mind like not just how do i approach this show with such finesse but how do i potentially make this stick with people to maybe even inspire them to do what I'm doing.
0: No, I, I, I don't take that into account when we're writing the story. You have to stay focused on the story and the characters and what's true. I think, I think the minute you start doing that, you start second guessing yourself or you are now writing a script with another purpose. You need to stay focused on the story and what would really happen. What would really take place? and, and, and you know, when you And you have to do that scene by scene, script by script. And if you do a good script and then the next script is good and the next script is good, you build a season. And then if you can build a few seasons, that's how you build a series. So it's step by step. And then you look back, you know, and, and I think, I think, um, someone just told me, um, you know, we can put our work out there, but it's not up to us to then judge our work. It's up to the, the audience and and the world at large. So it's just up to the artist to do their work. And I think that's, that's what's important. So, um, and very often when a show comes out, it may not be well-received for certain reasons and other shows may be well-received. And in the test of time, things change. So when the shield first came out, it was not well-received until it won an Emmy for Michael Chiklis at the end of the season. But, um after 911 cops and firemen were seen as heroes and we had an anti-hero cop who was you know killing another cop that people hated that that was a, a completely against the time you know right after 911 so i think in hindsight the story holds up but at the time, we were sure we were going to be canceled. So you never, you, you, you can't say, you know, it's 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 not our job.
2: It's interesting that you mentioned that because that actually leads into my next question. You were saying during your speech that a lot of anti heroes uh, perhaps spoke about political issues of the time. You know, like the Vietnam War mm-hmm. or like the nuclear conflict or even nine eleven, if you've just brought up again. Um, do antiheroes kind of work as a megaphone for things that people just aren't really talking about, but they kind of have on their minds, or is it to maybe question what people are actually thinking?
0: Uh that's a great question. It's probably both. They probably have some people are working out things in a, uh, uh, you know, a, a, a deeply subconscious way. You know, I think I don't think you know and i'd like to clarify something i said in my speech i don't think that these clichés or these tropes or these myths of the antihero when we spoke about them during the talk um are things that then people say oh i need to hit these okay i think people write their stories And when you look back in a critical way, you can see common threads. You can see common themes. And to trace this all the way back 200 years ago, you know, to to James Fenimore Cooper's work, I don't think people have made that connection. You know what I mean? To say, oh, Tony Soprano is related to Last of the Mohicans. Here's how. So again, that's a big picture, but I don't think anyone – sat down on the shield or the Sopranos or any of the stories we talked about and said, Oh, we need this character to do this because this is how an antihero acts. Again, you're focused in the story that you're telling. Does that make sense? No, absolutely. Yeah.
2: And actually on that note, um, cause in your, in your, in your lecture, you actually said that you predominantly prefer, you know, television work and that that's your main focus. Um, I wonder if you feel the same way as I do that there are anti-heroes in both mediums, film and television, but they're both drastically different. You look at somebody like Travis Bickle and you see him go from, you know, shell shocked to going mentally insane. And in, in a TV show, you kind of start off with the character as the anti-hero and you go into their lives is that something that's more prevalent in t- television because you get to sit with these anti heroes and you get to, you know, see Tony Soprano with his therapist or with his family, what he does on his job. Is it something that we feel more comfortable, you know, living with these characters on television than, than in films or can you see a little bit more of a similarity between the two?
0: Well, it's um if i understand your question you're saying that um Are you saying that there's an arc in film that you don't see in TV or vice versa? Um,
2: Well, there's an arc in television, but I feel like, you know, um, well, Breaking Bad is a good example of there being an actual arc. He started off good and became bad, but you have something like, you know, Tony Soprano or, um, you know, in the shield as well, where there are arcs, but you kind of see them starting off as corrupt or.
0: Well, but I think, I think in TV you get repeating arcs. So for example, you know, I could argue that Breaking Bad, Um, by the end of the pilot, he's pretty much, you know, you know, he's a bad guy, right? You know why he's done it because he feels that, that he's regained some male power. He had a sense of impotence and he comes back, he sleeps with his wife, I believe. And, and he has, has regained, he feels uh, virile, right? Right. Okay. So, and then every episode sort of repeats that Uh, when, when in Damien, When I subverted that and, and the episode one is not a microcosm of every episode, it frustrated a lot of audience. Now, there's a segment of the audience. Unfortunately, a TV audience could be larger than a film audience. There's a segment of the audience that says, okay, I'm willing to, you know, try this out. I'm a fan of the omen or I like the first episode or whatever, but they'll go along and you could build it. But, um, I think with TV, because TV is originally considered disposable, right? People make snap judgments about it in a way that they won't with films. You, you you don't really just watch five minutes of a film and shut it off unless it's god awful, right? You'll watch an entire movie and then say I didn't like it, but you will, you know, watch. You may shut off TV in five minutes. Because it's not what you expect. That's not what you want. You can make a snap decision because you're sitting in your living room and you're changing channels. Yeah. So I think, I think you, um, you know, maybe that's part of the reason why the anti hero does work on TV as well as film because it's so recordly, is so easily recognizable. You know, um, uh, think about the beginning of Breaking Bad. Uh, guys in his underwear. And he puts a gun in his underwear, right? And he right. runs out and there are cops and everything. And you're like, okay, I understand this guy's an anti-hero. He might be a goofy anti-hero in his tighty-whities, but he's an anti-hero. So, in The Walking Dead, we have a guy going for gas and he pulls out a gun and shoots a little girl zombie in his head. Immediately exposes the gun, questions of power. He's the guy. He's he's the, the, the man who's going to protect us from this, you know, frontier, Right. Right. Um, r- and you're in you know it r- readily uh, uh, y- you get it right away so I think there's an expectation on TV you need to get it right away
2: absolutely and you were bringing up a lot of these tropes in in your lecture you know as you said you know bam that person is the here because they said something specific and the character has turned around and uh, with all of these tropes and you went through a huge list of them you know um how they protect children but the, you know they kill without questioning and mm-hmm. you know they they stop at some things but they go full force with other things um and i remember you had like a few questions that were a little bit challenging from the Q&A is that because the anti-hero is just such a strong character type that you know you have so many things that are kind of targeting and question, making the audience question but with television, and you're watching it, you're not really questioning it because it's it's TV. But once it's brought out that these characters actually like that, suddenly I I feel like you're kind of making people question like what like who they're actually rooting for. Would you find that to be true?
0: Yeah, it, it, it is interesting that people, um, you know, on my own show, Damien, he's the Antichrist, right? And when he does something, you know, and and part of the trick is he's sympathetic, he's vulnerable. And 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 he's accessible, and so the audience is going along with him, right? And a lot of people tweet me: "Is it bad? I'm rooting for the Antichrist." Okay, they actually are questioning. I don't know why anyone would question it. It's just a character on a TV show. Exactly. It's not really the Antichrist, and 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 it's designed to get you to root for him he is the hero of the show so um it is interesting that people will come away and say you know um they'll root for certain things you know sometimes they won't root for things they'll or, or they won't question it you know i don't think you know, I think Tony Soprano was wish fulfillment. Okay. Here was a guy, you know, and, and his, his marriage was falling apart and he couldn't connect with his kids and he was a terrible father and a terrible husband. But, you know, he had some. But he was a badass. If he had to, he could kill you with his bare hands. Yeah, you know, do not mess with him. That's wish fulfillment for, for white middle-aged males. Okay, I still have my power. I'm, I'm a badass. You know, and and don't mess with me and my boys. That kind of stuff. So it, you know, it's it's um. And I don't think anybody ever said, "Oh, is it bad? I'm rooting for Tony Soprano." People, you know, knew he was he was evil. Let's say, and people would say like, oh, I just love him so much, you know, and, 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 and that's kind of fun on TV. You know, it's fun when you're rooting for the bad guy and you want the cops to get killed or whatever. It just kind of turns it upside down and, and, and it's a safe place to do that. It's only TV, you know, you can watch it and then shut it off. So that's, that's fun and exciting. Um. On that note,
2: actually, uh, with, you know, anti-heroes being rooted for, I remember another, uh, question was asking, are there any gay or lesbian, uh, anti-heroes? And one that came up to my mind was Omar from The Wire. And when The Wire ended, everybody was like, you know, that was like the one best thing of the show. Do you find that some anti-heroes stick more with the public than others? You know, for instance, as you said, Tony Soprano, nobody's questioning him, but then you might have somebody else like, I don't know, uh, a true detective, for instance, was like, oh, hang on a second. This guy's a little bit out there. Why do you think some antiheroes stick and some necessarily don't with its audience?
0: Hmm. That's a question. It probably has to do with time. You know, I I wonder how many people actually watched Omar and, and identified with that character. You you know what I mean? I wonder, I wonder, um, you know, um, It 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 probably has to do with how much time you spend with the character. It probably has to um, probably has to do with um, iconic lines, visuals. You know, I mean, you know, on Breaking Bad, you if somebody watched Breaking Bad, you know, they'll all remember the classic scene. Um, you know, I am the one who knocks. Yes. You know, you, you'll remember the imagery. Of the meth labs and and all those great scenes in the desert and a wide shot and there's a car and there's someone on their knees and someone holding a gun, you know, you know what I mean? So, you know, certain scenes just kind of stand out or because I think they're visually well done, they'll they'll burrow themselves into your brain, you know, uh, you you know what I mean? In a way that 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 maybe others won't you know there's a way you know and so i think it might just have to do with the craft you know goodfellas burrows yourself itself into your brain in a way casino doesn't yeah that's a good <laughs> example you know what i mean and it's just something about that particular work so um uh, i wish i had a better answer but that's the best i can do for you right now you know i some, think it's you not know? necessarily the times; it's yeah. just how the characters created. Yeah, it's just it's just got to do with the right actor, the right thing. You know, Tony uh, James Gandolfini, phenomenal actor. You know, um, um, uh, Brian Cranston, uh, Brian Cranston, terrific actor. You know what I mean? Um, John Hamm, you know, uh, uh, Michael Chiklis. So, so sometimes these characters they just they just you know have a have a, a larger than life charisma. You know, and and they also are the the world circles around them. Okay, like like, you know, Breaking Bad's world is not that interesting except for, you know, in in the world of Breaking Bad um, without Bryan Cranston's Walter White there. You know, everything is swirling around him, you know, Tony Soprano. So so the thing about The Wire is uh, I wouldn't say everything in The Wire was swirling around Omar. Exactly. Yeah. In the same way that. The Sopranos was tied to Tony Soprano. That may be part of it, but that just seems like a character on the landscape as opposed to a landscape swirling around a character. Maybe the audience was swirling around Omar, but not
2: necessarily like yeah, the actual episodes. Might be it. Um, I'm just going to wrap things up with one more question. Um, I'm a big fan of antiheroes as well. Maybe it's because we share the same birthday, July 6th. Maybe oh, that's there right. you go. Maybe it's yeah. the the day of the antihero, you know. Um, <laughs> so with that question, and you've brought up in your lecture and now all of these different tropes of antiheroes. I guess very quickly, if it comes to mind, who is your all time favorite antihero if you've not brought him up
0: yet? Uh yeah, I think uh, to be honest, I think my all-time favorite anti-hero I am going to have to say Vic Mackey. Uh just because I got to really play with that character and got to, and 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 I have such an emotional Vic Mackey changed my life in a way. Okay. So I can't just say as a fan, you know, as a fan it's probably Tony Soprano, but as as a as a as a writer as an artist and as a fan I'm going to have to say um Vic well perfect. Thank you very much for your time. Well, thank you. Appreciate it.
1: All right. So uh, Andreas, how how did that interview go? How did you feel about it talking with him? Um
2: first off, you had a chance to actually see his first lecture, right?
1: I did, and he was pretty fantastic.
2: Yes. And his topic, the anti-hero, which basically he talked about the American anti-hero and all of the qualifications. One needs to become an antihero, you know, to be a Walter White, to be a Tony Soprano. Um, a lot of that had a lot of very kind of risque questions from the crowd, and obviously it's a it's a subject matter that's going to garner that, you know, something where you're targeting things people hate, but in characters they love. So you know, a lot of a lot of people were bringing up questions that felt like kind of challenging. And uh, to be honest, while I was with them, it kind of felt the same way. Not even just if I was asking questions about these characters but just asking why he does this in the first place because anti-heroes as he was saying it's a bit of a cathartic thing for both writers and viewers because it's something we identify with guiltily especially during challenging times but you could say the same thing about the writer themselves so um, I was very scared of asking the wrong things I think it went okay um, I, just, I, I just wanted to do well and I hope I did <laughs>
1: Yeah, he definitely has a yeah, – yeah. he, he isn't exactly an imposing figure f- physically, but he definitely has that sort of mentality about him where he's he's so smart and he's got that like thick New York accent on him that he just sort of seems like a really tough dude on the inside. But exactly. he kind of like all turns it around because he's really nice as well and really outgoing and it's very disarming at the same time, um, but yeah, listening to him talk it was it was fantastic. Um, Nathan, what, what were your thoughts on on Glenn and his uh, his speeches?
3: I love Glenn. Like I said, honestly, I love the whole thing. I love every speaker. Um, he 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 was really cool because you know the pedigree of show. Well, they all came from great shows, so you can't really say that. But you know,
1: he was he was definitely the big one of the big names there.
3: Yeah, I guess. Yeah, 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 for sure. Yeah, because The Shield and and The uh, Walking Dead and even his show right now. Um, but, you know, my impression of him was exactly like you said. He's so, you know, even despite all these, maybe there's some intimidation factor there. Um, despite all that, you never got this, like, holier-than-thou vibe from anybody. They were all there to just simply, like, bleed their knowledge out to you. And, and that's what made the whole thing so great.
1: Yeah, it, it was a little frustrating... Watching his first session, I wasn't there on the second day, so I couldn't see his second one, but he, he, he very much went in in depth talking about some very difficult topics about how you approach, approach difficult subject matter as a writer, but then how do you approach it as A white straight male that, you know, if you're writing for women, how do you how do you infuse a female perspective on things, especially, you know, he talked quite a bit about uh, rape and sexual assault and things like that. And how you how you managed to write that as a man in a male dominated industry. And I think for the most part, the audience understood what he was getting at but i i know uh andres you you said you uh encountered a woman who who didn't seem to understand it or at least uh didn't like the way he uh was presenting it um yeah
2: and uh, i was talking to nathan about this a lot during the whole weekend there was a woman who popped up and basically spoke it i think all of the major presentations let's say uh she was a vocal figure who as as nathan i, I believe he put it as somebody who wanted to get the, their money's worth right
3: yeah she always started everything with i love your work uh, <laughs> but <laughs> yeah well, i don't know however
2: um yeah and the way she asked a question you know like how does how does a man approach you know a topic like rape rape's very it's very serious, so it should be included as a part of the, of the discussion, but how do you treat it as such as it's not just a shallow kind of aspect? And he, I believe he gave a great answer where he basically tried to say we've used rape before, but as a very serious character development or a, a scenario development, and not just something that kind of happens just to shock the viewers. But she, she proceeded to go into another lecture, I believe it was Emily Andrus, and she basically referred back to the Glenn Mazzara presentation and said, you know, I I asked something and, you know, I got a typical kind of sexist answer, not intentionally, but I got a sexist answer back. And even Emily Andrews was stunned, like, Glenn Mazzara? He's cool, what do you mean? You know, like, what happened? I gotta imagine it being bad. And I think the problem is with offensive topics, some people will always just find them offensive, no matter how you try and dodge bullets rightfully or unjustfully. You know, you can't, some people just Don't like offensive topics and Glenn Mazark basically opened his arms wide to every offensive topic under the sun.
1: (laughs) Yeah, Glenn very much could have not touched on the subject matter he wanted to. But you know, when you're dealing with antiheroes, you know, what makes them an antihero is that they're not a nice person you know they're they're complex they're difficult they sometimes do nice things you want them to do the nice things and succeed but at the same time they're usually you know criminals or they have some sort of issue with them whether it's uh, physical mental something like that where they're they are not they are far from the perfect human being and that's what makes the compelling television and you can't expect someone who is talking about that to dance around these subject matters and then Try to censor themselves. And I think, I think a couple times he did try to watch his, his choice of words. Really? really? I, I, I think he tried to watch what he was saying, but at the same time be like, look this is this is what i have to say so i'm just gonna spit it out and because i'm the one with the microphone you're gonna have to listen to me explain it afterwards but i still have to blurt it out and say yes we sometimes write about rape and sexual assault and sex scenes and doing terrible things to human beings and and murder and what have you um but it was just it was just sort of like every once in a while being like should i bite my tongue no i'm gonna spit it out and then explain it afterwards
3: was he also saying that, and um, I think the woman, the woman that went up and started asking questions, I think she maybe was trying to dig in, you know, how there's some people who they're, they're kind of just waiting for an excuse to get hurt or, you know, yeah. you know, get on their social justice horse. But I honestly, I felt like Glenn was just saying that, like, look, we, he said this, he's like, we don't need to give a powerful female character a rape background. There's no reason for that. And and he, the problem arises because you have traditionally you have a lot of males writing these roles and that's what they'll resort to. That's the place they'll go to. Um, what, what, or maybe, I don't know, maybe I zoned out a little bit, but isn't that what he was kind of saying that like, we don't need to give like these damaged females, um, females leads don't have to be damaged. They could be strong on their own.
2: Yeah, exactly. And I think the woman took that answer as we don't need to make females strong in roles and, instead of, we don't need to allude to rape as every defining moment in a female character's life basically so
1: yeah and he actually did a pretty good job you know disproving that sort of archetype that you need to write for which which i thought was pretty good like i think his his talk was probably the least sexist it could possibly be talking about that subject matter
3: and honestly i feel kind of it's unfair to give this whole like sexism thing so much time because his conversation his talk didn't revolve around that it was just about the anti-hero the history of it the first time it came up in media you know like the focus is on that this was just a little aside that happened
1: um, yeah i i i do agree
3: with that um Well, I was saying that, you know, I think it's unfair to give this whole sexism thing so much time in regards to Glenn's talk because that wasn't the focus of it at all. It was literally about the antihero, you know, the origin story of the antihero the first time it popped up in um, media, you know, the the way, uh, you know, just... It it is a guy who knew a lot about the antiheroes because that's what he writes, giving us his knowledge. And, you know, this was just, like, such a tiny thing. Part of it. it is not even important. So I feel it's a little unfair to kind of, like dance around this subject for so long
1: all right then um let's uh let's go into our second interview uh that we have for this episode uh we are going to Andres talked with steven falk who is uh another really acclaimed writer he um he created the, the show You're the Worst, which is on FXX, and uh, he's a, both a producer and a showrunner. He, uh, he also was an executive producer on Orange the New Black, worked on Weeds and a whole bunch of other stuff. This guy is definitely a very powerful person in the industry, especially for a at, at young age. So mm-hmm. let's give that a listen.
2: I'm here with Stephen Falk, who's behind some great, great dramedy series. You know, he's worked on Weeds, he's worked on Orange Is the New Black, and now he's got his own show, You're the Worst, which has received a lot of acclaim, especially in its second season. So, it's an absolute pleasure to be talking to you. How how are you? Good. Thank you so much for having me. Absolutely. And as we were saying uh, off the air previously, this is your first time doing a Toronto Screenwriting Conference.
4: Yes, I've uh, I've been here, but I've never been to the festival before.
2: Yeah, and you you're having a good time so far.
4: I am. Yeah, I um, I I took a long walk. Toronto is a lovely city. It was very nice yesterday. Um, and you have a lot of parks, which I appreciate. Um, we don't have a lot in LA. There's like two parks. It's terrible. And the people are nice. Canadians are very nice. I think.
2: <laughs> some, some, yeah, you, you have to live here long enough.
4: <laughs> and there was curling on TV today, which was amazing. We never see curling.
2: Because <laughs> we, we suck all the curling from, from the States. We bring it up here. We, yeah. we, we watch all of it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. We, we don't. I, I don't watch curly, <laughs> <but>. <laughs> Just to feed into stereotypes. But, exactly. I was just interviewing Maura Wally Beckett actually, and she brought up an interesting story where both of you were actually friends b- before like, you know, your, your biggest breaks, like back in 2008 or 2007 when the writer strike began. Yes. So that's quite interesting. What happened there?
4: Oh, uh, we, well, there, we, the writers guild went on strike, and, um, I don't know, her, she was on a show at the time. I was not. I had just written a bunch of pilots. So I chose which studio to pick it. <laughs> so uh, I chose Disney. Uh, it was, it was close to my house. And, uh, and so we just became, I, so I kind of, uh, since I didn't have a show and her show, all the writers were picketing together, they kind of let me join their little Cruise. So yep. for about three months, every day, for like four hours, we held picket signs and, <laughs> and became friends doing that, picket friends that's great because
2: you're at your most you know raw emotion where it's like i'm furious i'm angry yeah this person speaks my language let's let's meet up so
4: yeah it was fun
2: now it must be crazy because you know you're you're both highly successful you're both speaking at this conference you have like hundreds of people in the audience like trying to listen to your every word like jotting down what do i do how do i break out right, right so it's a huge fast difference where now you were picketing before now in a different light you're actually being heard and how is it like to have your word put out there, not just through a script?
4: Uh, I mean, I, I, uh, it, it's daunting. Um, I find it, um, it's a little bit of, uh, like paying it back, trying to not, not really, not necessarily teach what to do, but teach, okay, here's how I do it. Um, I put a lot of thought into the business of writing, but also the craft of writing and, um, uh, and if there's a, and and I've learned since I've learned from so many people, um, I feel like well, I may be a resource for someone. I may be um, someone may have my sensibility. They might say, "Oh, I'm glad to hear him talk about it this way because it reaffirms what I want, what I what I do, my process or or just generally reaffirms the fact that there there are people who make a living doing it, but still are like excited and, and care about it and put a lot of like wonky thought into the process of it can, can be edifying, can make someone feel like, okay, well, this is a, this thing that I'm doing that I spend a lot of time thinking about tinkering in final draft, reading scripts, like, um, I'm not alone. So that's so, sort of uh, a lot of the benefit.
2: And, you know, it's, it's great because, uh, you're somebody who has like a lot of your work has like the voice of like the everyday people, especially your current show, you're the worst, where it's like, it's, it's, you know, a lot of, um, a lot of fighting and a lot of like arguing. And it's stuff that everybody lives through, you know, every day. And in your actual presentation, you were speaking about how some of these characters have like conditions that you want to see, not just as like this, this dramatizing kind of, um, Torturing situation where it's like, you know, a lot of people have PTSD and in various situations, a lot of people have mental health issues, you know, like depression or, um, you know, bipolar disorder. And you have characters that, that have these kinds of traits, but you're trying to show a, like, not a different light because it's, it's stuff that people live through, but a more realistic light on television. So I think, I think that's terrific.
4: Yeah. I mean, I think, uh, one of my, my job is to entertain, obviously, but in a lot of ways, I think, um, the best thing that television does is make people or anything drama, any, any, any any drama, whether it's scripted, I mean, whether it's theater or, or film or, um, is to entertain first of all, but, but then also to make your struggle feel less lonely to make you recognize aspects of yourself up there. Even if it's a, you're looking at a superhero or a King or, Or in our case, um, uh, a couple of people trying to figure out a relationship that that there's there's a shared struggle that we all have. Um, You know, you may not have PTSD or depression, PTSD, but you can watch them go through this and find a parallel to a struggle you may have, or um, find a way to deal or not to deal with a friend who may have similar situations, or just to or. Or just to see people struggle with love and go, okay, yeah, relationships are tough. I don't feel as alone, even though I don't live in Los Angeles. I'm not a, I'm not, uh, I don't have the jobs that these people do. I'm not as good looking as they are because you know who who is as good looking as as actors. But not I, <laughs> um, but you recognize your humanity in them, and it can make you feel less lonely. And I think that's a, a, a good thing that television can do. Absolutely.
2: And, uh, you know, through the dramedy prose, you're getting like a lot of realism because, uh, in your presentation, you're talking about how jarring it could be to have like something so dramatic following or, or preceded by, you know, something that's, that's hilarious or like awkwardly funny or both just inherently funny. Yeah. Um, which it's is life. It's, it's life. Exactly. That's, that's literally the point I was going to get to. Like, you're a writer. You knew exactly what I was going to say. That's scary, actually.
4: <laughs> I mean, you may be, you know, you may be in a, in a hospital watching a loved one die and then a nurse may slip on a puddle of pee and fall <laughs> in a way that strikes you as hilarious. And that, again, yeah, that's life, comedy and tragedy. And, you know, you, you bring that, you
2: know, light and darkness into every scenario so well. And, how do you go about writing that? Because do you find it often that you're writing a scene and it's leaning more towards one angle, but you want to have more of a balance. Like how do you overcome one sidedness in such a balanced kind of setting?
4: I, I think you just have to sort of, um, always have, uh, your tuning fork, um, going. You always have to be taking the temperature of, of the scene or the episode. And it, it's, it's really a feel thing. It's not qu- quantitative. Um, but it's something where, you know, to to try to use a, a music analogy, um, where, you know, that maybe there's a, uh, you have a, uh, let's say a ballad, but it's just feeling morbid and cheesy or dead for a minute. And you want to just fucking wail on your guitar for a second in the middle of this, uh, ballad and then you have a power ballad then it can it can work um uh that's a really clunky metaphor but i guess it works um, i guess it it's it's always being aware that there's both sides to everything and then feeling what the scene's supposed to do in the context of the episode and maybe it doesn't need humor but 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 maybe there's something you can do that can uh, maybe it's feeling a little saccharine or a little overly sweet and we call them um uh what do we call it? now i'm forgetting what we call them um Oh shit! Uh, not saccharin, but anyway, to oh cut you, you want you want to cut the saccharin, you want to yeah. cut the sweetness, and um, and it can really it can be a moment of levity in the middle of of tragedy that can just feel right and 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 bring the audience um you know back to life a little bit.
2: Now it might not just be therapeutic for the audience; is it therapeutic for you as well as a writer? Or maybe you're feeling like a whole multitude of, of a clusterfuck of emotions, where it's like, hey. I need to get this out here and you perhaps bring it into the writing room or is that something you would prefer to like maybe leave out of the writing room?
4: Does it help? Do you mean per your personal day to day struggles? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it absolutely can, can work. Um, but you have to be careful that you that it makes sense for the show and for the story. Yeah. I would never want to just put something I'm going through up on screen just because I'm going through it. It would have to be, well, is it appropriate for the characters? Does it make sense? Um, and then it can work, but, uh, but there's sometimes when you're too close to something to be, to be able to write something, I think you need to have a bit of perspective, a distant perspective from it. And, um, if you're a good writer, you can, you can force a perspective shift pretty easily on something you're, you're going through, but, to really be fully aware of it. Like I'm, I'm a new father and there's some aspects of it that I'm, I probably am too close to, to really be able to render on screen properly. Uh, I went through a divorce. I, that was a while ago. So I think I have a pretty good handle on that. If that makes any sense.
2: No, absolutely. Which, by the way, congratulations on being a new father. Thank uh, you. Um, for those listening, we basically had a new, an introduction to, uh, to your newborn on the uh, wallpaper.
4: <laughs> yeah. She was, she's on my, on my backdrop. Yeah. And the whole, the whole audience lost it. They're like, uh, oh, <laughs> yeah, I know. She's a cutie.
2: <laughs> well, um, speaking of perspective, the, uh, and you can't necessarily bring, as you said, too much of your personal life into the show. Has that changed things drastically? Not just as a writer, but as a human being, you know, being a father now?
4: Oh gosh. Um, yeah, absolutely. I mean, uh, it makes you, makes it kind of of boring. Um, yeah. I mean, we, travel is different. I mean, we traveled and that's like, you know, the plane is not fun even, even to the degree that an airplane can be fun. Um, so there's a lot of things that it, it curbs and, and hampers, but then there, then, then like, you know, you realize, or I realized, um, Wow! All the, the like the 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 crap that I've been doing or worrying about is just less important than than the kid, and I think that's a, gain, gains a sense of perspective on one's life. Hopefully, and and also t- in truth, there 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 are aspects that it doesn't change that much. It doesn't eliminate your day to day petty feelings and thoughts, and it, it's not suddenly oh my life has meaning. It's still a goddamn slog, Um, and that's actually a really good thing. I think it's a nice thing to to realize that humanity, um, your humanity, stays a bit fixed.
2: Is that something that you might inject into? You know, you're the worst, perhaps, because it is a show that is fueled on a lot of like petty, but also bigger picture kind of problems.
4: Yeah, I mean, I I think certainly it 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 depends on how long the show goes, but certainly um, becoming parents. is a logical step for a relationship show. I just, um, kids are a drag to shoot and, uh, I would, I wouldn't want to, um, I wouldn't want to, um, I'd want to save it until it was the right time. I don't know when that would be, but yeah, it's on the table for sure.
2: Now to go back to your show, you're the worst is a very interesting title actually, because it's, it's, it sounds very straightforward on paper. You know, this person sucks, but in context and correct me if I'm wrong, it actually seems a lot more complicated. Like, it's it's this um, this feeling that a lot of people feel that like I'm I'm the shittiest person out there like the world's against me and you know somebody with mental disorder might right. perhaps feel that way or it's the constant blaming of one another like what does the show title mean to you and because to me it's it's quite a clever title actually
4: oh thanks I think all those things I mean I think uh, first of all just to be um, to be a, a business person about it a, a title is a, a sales tool really right so. um it's good to have a title that is catchy and zeitgeisty, which it is. I think people say it all the time. Uh, it's a singer. Yeah. People say oh, that guy's the worst. He's the worst. She's the worst. It's the worst. Um, you know, I, I don't know exactly when it became part of the sort of slang vernacular, but it, it certainly is now. And so then to own that space to make people think of my show when people say that is a bonus that I never really uh, uh, thought of, but it, it's, it's kind of awesome. Um, but yeah, it, uh, it's a, you know, there's, there's a ironic negativity, um, I think to both the title and the theme song, um, the lyrics of which is, I'm going to leave you anyway. Um, that is sort of, uh, it sets, a it, it's the correct tone for the show, right? So it's the, the, uh, you're the worst is, is both, um, kind of young. It's a, it's a slang term. Um, so it, it, it connotes that properly. In other words, yes, it is a show about people in the early thirties. Um, so it has some youth to it. It, it, and it, it's current. Uh, it's a show that's current, but it's also a show that is, um, is kind of, uh, black in its humor and, and, and negative in its humor. And I think, uh, so I think the term befits it pretty well, the, the title. Um
2: And along with this show and the others you've worked on, you've dabbled a lot in, you know, the dramedy genre, which we've of course seen for decades. But it's something that I feel is a lot more of a current kind of element, especially in the way that it is now, because you you can consider Mash maybe a dramedy, but sure. it's it's very loosely a dramedy. It's mostly silly and and with high but it has a few serious moments. Yeah. I know, I know you brought up Cheers as like a great form of like you know character exposition and like perspectives within a show. But was there anything cheers or unrelated to cheers that maybe made you sit back and say, Hey, we can combine these two elements of the tragic and the humorous in one. Like, was there anything that influenced you in that way?
4: Well, I, I mean, in a big way, the first show I worked on weeds, um, had those elements. Absolutely. Uh, it was, you know, about, a, a, a recent young widow, surprise heart attack widow. Um, and her struggle to feed her family, you know, and, and turn to selling drugs. Um, doesn't sound hilarious, but it was a very funny show, but it also was not afraid of being very serious. And, um, and I, I responded, I was a fan of the show for years until I started working on it. Um, but I responded to that refusal to be categorized. It was half hour, so you think it's a comedy, but then geez, it's sometimes not funny at all. It's sometimes quite frightening. Really dark. <laughs> yeah. And and or frightening. Or but then it also was fucking silly. Kevin Nealon's character was was really silly and really a big dumb goofball. And um and so it, it it wasn't afraid to be wildly tonally different. And 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 growing up, you know, as a student of television, really, there were there were shows that had those elements. There were few and far between. Um, but mash certainly is one. It had a laugh track, but it wasn't that funny of a show. Um, and, uh, and so I've always been, yeah, I love straight comedy. I love straight drama, but I've always been fascinated by the in between. Um, but yeah, but, but, but seeing weeds and then working on it made me go, okay, yeah, this is a viable genre and I don't care if you call it a comedy. It it can be whatever it wants to be.
2: And then you also have orange, which you also worked on, which is like that one probably, was like even more indecisive about like uh, what exactly is it? Cause I mean, it got, it? Yeah. It got nominated for both drama and comedic Emmys, which is, yeah. has that quite ever happened before?
4: I don't know. I mean, that <laughs> has a lot to do with the fact that the network can put it up for whatever it wants. To. Exactly. So that was, that was, the, there's a bit of positioning to see what they, you think you have a bet, better chance at winning. Um, I don't know. I, I think it's happened. I think shows have changed, uh, moved. Uh, I think Ally McBeal was nominated for comedy, uh, even though it was an hour, I think. Maybe Desperate Housewives, also. Anyway, oh really? I think so. Wow. I want to say they put themselves up for comedy. I may be wrong, but um, there, yeah, there've been some shows uh, that did that. But yeah, it's it's confusing. But uh,
2: in that element, you know, you're stuck in a prison along with these other inmates who go through some very serious kinds of things that actually do happen in prisons. And but at the same time, it's as you said, it's taking light of the situation. So after working on those two shows, like. What was the most important thing that you brought over from those into something that's, you're the worst, which is not in a jail. It's not, you know, being a, a, a widow that has to like get by selling drugs. Right. It's, it's just common domestic arguing.
4: I think it's, um, things I learned from those shows and, and from, from Genji, um, uh, narrative fearlessness, um, uh, not being afraid of something that, like depression, that seems very risky to do on television, um, uh, or or just uh, not a fear fear of, of small jokes, something that may be too big or broad. Um, she's not afraid of that. Um, so yeah, I think I think um, I think fearlessness is the number one thing that I brought over from those shows.
2: Now uh, on some final words because basically your shows speak about, you know, life and your craft so so large. Like what's some parting words for you know like aspiring writers or people just struggling just to get by just to you know do what they love.
4: I think the most important thing is to discover what your specific unique voice is. Um hone it down um until it's a fine beautiful syrup of you and um and that it drips, uh, it, it colors everything that you write. It doesn't all have to be the same genre, it doesn't all have to sound exactly the same. But to establish a voice, I think, is, uh, is incredibly important and discover what it is. Um, and you only do that by writing, 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 and writing about what you care about. I think that's incredibly important. And then you can go and, and, and you know, do stuff for hire that you don't care about. But uh, until, until you have to, just write about what you care about and distill your voice.
2: And that, that voice and that very syrup can be found in the very textured You're the Worst. So um, thank you again. It's been an absolute Thanks, privilege. Man. I appreciate it. Thanks Perfect. so much.
1: All right. Uh, so, Andreas, what did you think about uh, your interview with Stephen Falk? First off, and
2: uh, you, know, you can say otherwise if you, don't, if you don't feel this way, when I was talking to him, he kind of felt like a jolly – tamer less intimidating version of
3: jk simmons
2: am i the only one who feels that way
3: i guess i don't know i didn't really have a conversation
2: <laughs> not fair enough but i mean like just like hearing him talk and seeing his presence you know the you know his booming voice like he had a definite presence to him but none of it was scary at all and He's a he's a funny guy. Like he, he's not always firing jokes, but he's just got an energy to him. He's got a he's got a cartoonish charisma to him where just everything he says is interesting or just at least interesting to listen to. I, I don't know. Did you get that vibe too?
3: Yeah, I, I think a lot of that had to do with probably like the, the the low uh tone his voice is in. Is that what you're referring to?
2: A little bit, but just the way he tells stories, you know, he's very casual with his with his loose language. He's very visceral. He's very heartfelt. Like, you could tell everything's not pre-calculated. It's coming from the back of his mind, and he's splurging it out. He's just, he's very interesting to talk to. And even before and after the interview, you know, him and, uh, you know, like all the other guests as well, but him especially, we were just talking very casually. Like, yo, how was, how was your weekend so far? Oh man, it's great! I'm watching all these different things. Uh, I'm so excited to see this person and that person. He's he's just chill; like he doesn't have an air about him
3: at all. Yeah, I mean, honestly, now that I think about it, because I you when when he came in for his presentation, it was the first presentation, and instantly when he got on stage, I don't think another speaker made everybody laugh like that. Maybe that's because we all had the um, expectation, like, okay, here's a comedy writer. We got to you know this is going to be funny. We should be ready to laugh, but. I, yeah, there was definitely something like that going on. Well,
1: that's good. Uh, being that he was, you know, sort of the one of the few comedy writers of the weekend, do you think he approached his session a bit differently?
3: Well, the thing about his was it wasn't even so much about comedy as it was how do you break a season of television? You know, him as the presenter, like Andrea said, he's a very charismatic guy, so maybe that brought in the comedy element. But literally, it was a very... Uh, this is the thing we do. This is the system we use to break a season of TV. And honestly, it was um, extremely helpful for anybody in, you know interested in going into television to see his process in particular because he has worked on so many successful shows and is currently the head of a really successful show as well.
1: Well, that's good to hear. Um- yeah it's it's sort of funny to think about when you're writing a show that you really need to plan whether it's a 13 episode season or you know network 22 episode 24 episode thing and then from there deciding are you going to carry things over to a full you know five six year series were were those things that he touched on as well
3: yeah he talked about season arcs um character arcs for the season kind of how he wants to do, you know, how they kind of direct the whole thing. Um, yeah, there was definitely a talk, uh, you know, he he broke it. He didn't break it down. He didn't deliberately say, okay, this is the macro scale. This is how we do
1: it on the micro level.
3: But he did mention, you know, macro elements and kind of micro stuff.
1: Well, that's good to hear. Um, you know, this, uh the, Glenn was on both day one and day two, and Stephen was on day two. So we're, we're kind of all over the place. But I, I think this is uh, good for the first episode. But then when you tune in for the next episode, we're going to have two more great interviews. So, uh, Andreas, where can all of our listeners find you?
2: You can find me on Twitter, without the great prowess of a screenwriter,
3: at Andreas Babs.
1: Uh, Nathan, do you have any social media you want to plug?
3: Yeah, you can follow me at uh, Nathaniel Noizen. So it's just my name, Nathaniel. Um, which Nathan would be the nickname of. Um, And then, uh, you know, the, the first letters are just switched around.
1: All right. And then uh, you can follow me at DGAPA. You can follow the show at Pod. Make sure you check out the show notes on liveandlimbo.com where we're going to have info about the Trauma Screenwriting Conference, which has uh, a day one review by Andreas and a day two review by Nathan, uh, along with info of the uh, the interviewees that we had on this episode. So thank you so much for listening.
4: Hey, this is Stephen Falk, showrunner, executive producer of You're the Worst, a television show about people trying to do it and not kill each other. Uh, you're listening to the ContraZoom podcast on liveinlimbo.com.